This is the In Focus podcast from the Hindu. Hello and welcome to another edition of the In Focus podcast. I'm your host G Sampath. The summer is upon us and there have been some dire predictions about how hazardous the heat is going to be. India this year experienced its warmest February since 1877 and in November last year the World Bank warned that India could become one of the first places in the world where wet bulb temperatures could increase beyond the survivability threshold of 35 degrees Celsius. Furthermore, last month Peter Dines, chief strategy officer at Mirrors for Earth's Energy Rebalancing tweeted that India this summer is at serious risk of wet bulb if global temperatures continue to rise and a 2022 lancet report stated that india has witnessed a 55% increase in deaths related to extreme heat so what exactly is the wet bulb phenomenon what does it mean when it is said that summer temperatures in india could cross the wet bulb threshold and have heat wave conditions in india worsened due to climate change and what should we be doing to protect the most vulnerable from heat related issues we explore all these questions and more in this episode of in focus and we have with us aditya valyathan pillai who is an associate fellow with the institute for climate energy and environment at the center for policy research delhi aditya thank you so much for joining us thank you for having me i'm very excited to be on the podcast of which i'm a listener so uh, very excited to talk to you about heat in india great 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 to have you aditya to start off with can you please tell us is there any evidence to show that india's summers have become hotter over time because of climate change yes there is evidence uh, in india and across the world uh, that uh, heat in general is increasing and specifically that heat waves which are uh, small periods uh, of extreme heat which kind of overwhelm uh, not only human bodies but occasionally the economic system as well there's evidence to suggest that heat waves are increasing both in duration and also changing in their seasonality so they're coming earlier um um which we saw last year as well um so it's a, a different world we're living in in terms of dealing with nature not only because of changes in precipitation patterns uh, but also in terms of the nature of heat and for a hot country like india where a large percentage of the labor population is heat exposed uh, one study estimates that around 3/4 of india's um, labor force is exposed to uh, heat uh, that becomes an extremely big problem right so so you you gave a definition of uh, heat wave in terms of uh, consecutive days when it is temperatures are very hot right so is is there any link between heat wave or heat wave conditions and what they refer to as wet bulb temperatures i mean what what exactly is this wet bulb temperature why is everybody getting uh, sort of mildly panicky about it is there something we should really worry about here I don't think it's not mildly panic I think there's definitely a sense of panic about this and the reason there's a sense of panic is because this is where the human body no longer has the ability to adapt to uh the heat right so what happens is um the external atmospheric conditions um at this wet bulb temperature threshold 
are such that the body can no longer use its internal cooling mechanism, which is sweat. So normally sweat evaporates, it cools the body, and that lets us adapt to increased temperatures. Uh, but in the case where a wet bulb temperature has been reached, the humidity outside the body around you is so high um, that uh, the sweat is unable to evaporate and therefore your body temperature increases and you sort of uh, go into uh, a physiological response that uh, eventually could lead to death. Um, and it is... Uh, quite possible that this will happen over fairly large swathes of the country uh, uh, as the temperature increases along the different temperature pathways. Um, and there are reports by credible scientific agencies and multilateral bodies that suggest uh, that not only will working hours decrease because the human body won't be able to take that combination of humidity and heat, uh, but also it could lead to large-scale loss of life, especially closer towards the end of the century and possibly even before that, if we're not able to significantly reduce the rate of temperature increase due to climate so change. So let me, let me just interrupt you there just for a second. So are you saying that the wet bulb phenomenon happens when there is uh, humidity which is high along with heat or is it dry heat? No, it's humidity. It's a humidity-linked uh, phenomenon. And it's so, so Delhi is known, uh, Delhi summers are known for dry heat as opposed to say Chennai or Bangalore or whatever. So is there less chance of wet bulb phenomenon in, in a dry place like Delhi or Rajasthan say compared to Chennai? Is that how one understands it? Yeah, I would suppose so. Uh, but also it's not an absolute uh, thing in the sense that if um, you're in a place uh, where the temperature, just the absolute temperature is extremely high, say crossing 50, and you have a moderate increase in humidity, that can also be a very bad thing. Um, but if you are in a coastal area with a much less absolute temperature, say closer to you know 35, 36, 37, but you have extremely high levels of humi humidity, that can be equally uh, 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 bad for uh, both morbidity and mortality. That means health effects and uh, deaths, fatalities due to heat. So it's not one absolute number. It's not just one level of humidity. It often uh, operates on a scale. So if both humidity and temperature are very high, that's when you get into really uh, uh, into a really tough spot. Right. So it's a combination of both of them uh, leading to a particularly sharpened effect on the body. That's right. Right. So you were speaking before that, before I interrupted, you were talking about the geographical spread in India, uh, you know, the, the, the areas which are at higher risk of uh, extreme heat conditions and wet bulb and so on. So, uh, so, so should we assume that except for the hilly areas, you know, like the near the Himalayas or whatever, every, every other place in India is at risk? Is that how uh, it is? Um, that's actually very hard to say. Uh, I don't think there has been enough sort of downscale work to try and understand exactly how each neighborhood in a city or each city will respond uh, to increase in humidity and indeed whether there is a higher probability of an increase in humidity in those areas. Because I think that requires a fairly high uh, level of climate modeling. It's not something I've seen anyway. Uh, but this also operates based on you know your local uh, your local conditions, right? So it also um, 
uh, operates on the basis of whether you have large-scale water bodies nearby. Uh, recently, there was a conversation uh, about an IPCC finding about irrigation possibly leading to uh, increased local humidity uh, and so on. Right? So large irrigation systems, the presence of large irrigation systems. So it's not necessarily only by the sea that it happens. It can happen uh, pretty much uh, anywhere where uh, humidity levels can go up, especially around water bodies. I'm not a climate scientist, so I think the modeling of humidity is a fairly fine art. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely not just the coastal regions. Um, I'm not even sure that a lot, the entire uh, span of hilly regions is beyond the pale of uh, humid heat, uh, because obviously water bodies running through the mountains as well. And some regions, especially clo uh, closer to the foothills, uh, can get uh, quite, quite hot. Right. So, is it? Can we then say, for instance, that uh, the, the summers are definitely hotter in the north of the country? Is the northern India region or the northern plains at a higher risk uh, for extreme heat haza uh, related hazards uh, compared to the south, for instance? So, it depends on what uh, how you're defining risk, right? So, the 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 temperatures are high, much higher in the in, in northern India, but also there are several adaptation mechanisms that have been built over many decades uh, and centuries at the personal level, right? So a lot of communities here, for example, ones that practice agriculture and so on, have the ability to uh, adapt to high levels of dry heat. Um, in the south, that may not always be the case. So I come from coastal Karnataka, where we've seen, I think, temperatures now frequently getting into the 40s, where, whereas uh, a couple of decades ago, that definitely wasn't the case. And so that sort of personal adaptation doesn't exist in all communities in all states. Uh, so risk is experienced differently by different people, by different individuals. Um, and so it's not a neat categorization of the North being, this heat being a North Indian problem, whereas South Indian states are sort of free from its effects, right? And as you said earlier, humidity, for example, could really make the problem very bad in some South Indian areas that um, have quite uh, quite a lot of exposure uh, to water bodies uh, and humid air. So it's, it's a it's it's a condition. It's you can't have a straight delineation. Can't draw a line on the map and say this is where the heat impacts will be felt the most. Right. No, that's a very important point you made about uh, you know, people's historical ability, you know, historical ability of communities to adapt. You know, they have uh, these customs and traditions, you know, uh, passed down from generations where you, you know how to adapt to dry heat. But then we are no longer talking only about dry heat. Uh, there is going to be uh, this wet bulb effect, which we just discussed. Now, going on to uh, from, from this whole climate side of things to you know how we deal with it, you have just now worked on a report evaluating India's heat action plans. And there seem to be quite a number of them in different states across the country. So can you summarize uh, for the benefit of our listeners, the main findings of your uh, research study? I mean, uh, how what are these plans trying to do? Are they adequate in terms of the threats we face? Are they well funded? Or are they just on paper? Like what, what, what do we have here? Yeah. Uh, so we last year when when the march 2022 heat waves hit uh, it started becoming quite clear that 
we had heat action plans and these were our first and last line of defense against extreme heat. Uh, and we want to check how well structured these heat action plans were, um, which is why we put together this study. Um, and this is the first such uh, study of its kind. Um, and one of the big tasks was even collecting all of these heat action plans. The reason being there's no central repository and these heat action plans are put forward by a variety of governments at different levels. So some states have heat action plans, some districts have heat action plans, some cities have heat action plans. Because like we were talking about earlier, heat is... Like how, how are these plans made? Is it like cooked up by one bureaucrat sitting somewhere or was there a process of consultation with climate scientists and other experts and so on? Like how did they come up? I'm, I'm, I'm as curious about that as you are because I would like to try and understand uh, how consultative they were and what the political drivers of these heat action plans are. Um, as far as we know, these are brought together by various levels of local government, say a state government or a municipal government in consultation with a technical consultant. Uh, and these are you know, very different types of technical consultants. Some of them are public health uh, NGOs. Uh, some of them are multilateral bodies. Um, some of them are the local hospital, for example, right? Um, and so they put together what they understand the heat risk to be and how, how to solve it. Um, what we found was this is happening in a whole lot of jurisdictions, right? So we found that this is happening in um, at least 37 different places uh, between cities, districts, and states. Um, so that was actually... Uh, in, in some ways heartening to see that this has now become central to the broader architecture of climate policy in this country. Um, but also it leaves a question of whether there's enough coverage, right? So for example, Delhi doesn't have a heat action plan. And as you were saying earlier, uh, Delhi experiences extremely high levels. Of so are you saying that in, in, in this country where there are more than, I think you say your report says there are 100 different plans, right? And you have taken... No, no, we... No, no, we say that some estimates suggest that there are 100 plus plans. Uh, we investigated that and we tried to find all the plans available. So we got in touch with every state disaster management authority in this country and talked to various people involved in heat planning. And totally, we were able to come up with 37 of them. There so may you, be you some. You came more... up with 37 different uh, plans and, and of all of them, not one of them is for, is for Delhi. Yeah, that's right. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, okay. Okay, sorry, go on. Um, yeah. As far as as far as I understand, the Delhi plan is something I dug into a little bit. Um, uh, there is a plan that is at draft stage or advanced draft stage, and it's doing the rounds and uh, about to get approval or might be combined with Delhi's climate plan, which is yet to be issued, climate change action plan. Um, but that's the Delhi story. But anyway, the the, the broader the the broader uh, scene uh, that these heat action plans are embedded in is one where I think governments are starting to wake up and realize um, that heat is a threat. Um, and we have, there are a couple of reasons I think they're putting forward these heat action plans. One is of course the historical lesson from the Ahmedabad heat wave. Um, where there was large-scale loss of life, uh, they created a heat action plan, which some peer-reviewed uh, studies suggest have been successful in limiting deaths 
Also, the central government has been pushing these heat action plans, right? So multiple times, the prime minister has asked various jurisdictions to come up with heat action plans. The National Disaster Management Agency put together a set of guidelines. So um, we've seen heat action plans become more central to the climate policy framework. But, you know, the question is, um, do they do a good job of addressing the issue at hand, which is extreme heat that can potentially debilitate society? Um, and are they well institutionalized enough? And that's where we found that there was some lacunae um, and these heat action plans had uh, a fair bit to go. Um, and so if you want, I can get into the details of why and where they were deficient. Um, yeah, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about this lacunae you were referring to? Like, like I, I was just curious to know how did they approach the effects of extreme heat, you know, and was the lacuna in the way they approach things or was the lacuna elsewhere, you know? So I think the first bit, the very, the most basic one was uh, how they defined uh, heat waves, right? So these are heat action plans meant to de deal with heat waves. So heat waves are uh, short periods of a few days and, you know, God forbid, uh, a week or more of extreme heat. Uh, um and these are plans that are built to deal with that through preparatory measures and also immediate response once the heat wave is declared. And we found that the nature of heat they were considering was perhaps not the best way of approaching the problem because they focused mostly on dry temperatures um, and they didn't include, a lot of them didn't include uh, measures of humidity, which means you actually could end up in a situation where you have humid heat and wet bulb temperatures, uh, but the heat action plan is not built to understand and respond to a humid heat wave. Similarly, one let, of the let, other... Let, let me just rephrase this. So if I understand you right, there are two things which I, which I can see here. One is, on the one hand, everybody's worried about this wet bulb phenomenon, which is to do with a combination of humidity and heat. And our heat action plans are primarily focused on dry heat, not taking right. into account humidity. Is that right? That's right. And the second bit is it's not just about wet bulb temperatures. It's also about how hot your nights are. So imagine you have a, a searingly hot day, a heat wave day. The body takes time at night to recover and recuperate uh, so you can handle the next, next hot day. Um, but if your nighttime low temperatures much higher than it's supposed to be, then the body cannot recover. And that's when you have an even bigger problem. If it goes on for three or four days, you suddenly start seeing uh, large-scale loss of life. And we've seen that historically with other heat waves globally. Um, and again, hot, uh, hot nights aren't really built in uh, to uh, the way heat action plans understand heat waves and extreme heat. Um, that is one part of the problem. The second problem is the social side of this. The social side of the heat problem is like all climate impacts, the great injustice is that it affects the poorest and the most vulnerable the most. And to understand where your poorest and most vulnerable are in a city, say you have a city of 20, 25 million people, you want to know who is most vulnerable to this. For, for that, you have to understand who's working jobs that are most vulnerable to heat and who has the least capacity to adapt to heat, which means they don't have the air conditioners, they don't have the money for uh, cool refreshments, 
and they don't have the bargaining power to deal with, uh, say, their contractors or employers to take time off from their back-breaking work in the sun. You have to know exactly where uh, those sorts of people are in your city, which neighborhoods, which localities, so you can rush emergency services to them in the event of a heat wave and before a heat wave, give them enough information to prepare for the effects of extreme heat, right? Crucial, simple stuff like what is a heat wave? What kind of uh, symptoms will you experience before you go into uh, uh, serious uh, heat stress? Now, for that, what heat action plans do generally is they conduct vulnerability assessments, which is locating exactly where these vulnerable populations are. You want to know where a group of recently uh, uh, recently immigrated construction workers to your city are located. Uh, you have to conduct a vulnerability assessment to know exactly where they are. And we found that only two of the 37 heat action plans conducted vulnerability assessments, uh, which means you have heat action plans that suggest a very diverse list of solutions. Um, but don't exactly know where to target them. And so in a city with 20 million people, for example, um, there's a big chance that it's a drop of ink in uh, an ocean where it just diffuses, right? The effort of the heat action plan is just diffused uh, and it doesn't hit the right people. And so you might, again, have high levels of mortality because of that. Um, and you'll almost definitely have uh, high losses to economic productivity during a heat wave. Um, and so that was a that was a second uh, sort of major uh, lacuna in how these heat action plans were constructed. Right. So can you talk a little bit about how when these uh, heat action plans actually work? Uh, you are saying they are too broad based and not uh, sharp enough to target or address the requirements of the most vulnerable. So, I mean, from my broad understanding, I I mean, they work in terms of these color-coded alerts and all that, right? So, w- what actually happens? Like, are those alerts directed to the cell phones of certain people? Or, like, how, how would you sort of uh, make these plans effective? And how are they right. ineffective at the moment? Can you just talk a bit about that? Yeah, great question. Um, so, these plans do a lot of things. So, one part of it is information dissemination and uh, awareness building, right? Like I was saying earlier, you have to communicate to people what a heat wave is, what it can do to them, and what they should do if they start feeling the symptoms. For that, it's done through public hoardings, LED billboards, mobile phone alerts, uh, YouTube videos, a whole range of information dissemination methods. Uh, but one of the things we found is when looking at these information dissemination measures proposed, which are almost universally proposed across India's heat action plans, uh, we found that they don't specifically think about how to communicate with people in low literacy um, uh, contexts or low technology contexts where they don't have uh, a smartphone, right? So how do you reach them um, if they're using an old school non-smartphone? Um, and don't have the literacy to be able to uh, understand what a heat wave is. And that's the kind of fine-grained messaging you need because your mining worker or your construction worker, I think, has a higher chance uh, of being illiterate than a white-collar job worker who has access to AC in their car and in their offices. Um, uh, similarly... Uh, Aditya, that, just, 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 I just uh, stop you here. See, the, in, you spoke about this messaging. You know, I mean, this messaging and informational work is, is it's, it's, it's great. But 
in if we are, if we are talking about uh, vulnerable populations and and workers say in a mine or a construction site shouldn't there be some kind of a government uh, alert or something which kicks in as part of the heat action plan where it says okay this temperature is now gone here there will be no mining there will be no construction work so that there is no compulsion on these workers to go report for work in these conditions yeah so there there is um a threshold at which heat action plans are supposed to kick in their emergency measures right and these temperature thresholds are uh, basically determined by what sort of uh, local heat conditions you have right and the temperature should ideally be able to factor in uh, that there is a high level of humidity today uh, that it's extremely hot and therefore we need to issue a red alert and stop a lot of economic activity but the problem is if you if you've not factored in the humidity then in uh, which is what we were discussing earlier right the humidity is not been factored in a lot of these heat action plans the threshold is quite meaningless um and so one of the big problems and what you what we were discussing was the lack of adequate localization one of the big problems is the threshold that is used in most of these heat action plans is usually the imd uh, national level threshold so imd is the indian Meteor- meteorological department they have a national level uh, understanding of what the temperature threshold should be for a heat wave in uh, different geographical zones and that is what is sort of copied into most of these heat action plans they don't actually have a bottom up self assessment of what uh, the temperature threshold for a heat wave should be so you have there are two problems coming out of that either you declare the heat wave too early in which case you'll you'll be unloading your gun uh, before the threat um in the sense that the heat wave might only kick in the effects of the heat wave might only kick in later but you've expended public resources on your immediate heat wave response well before that has happened or you declare the heat wave too late in which case the worst has already begun to happen and you've responded too late and you might have a high uh, mortality count right so uh, we are running out of time aditya one final question uh, before we wrap up so you you have you have very well identified three uh, issues with our existing uh, response strategies heat action plans or whatever we call them one is you said it doesn't take adequate account of humidity as an issue secondly you spoke about how uh, they are not great at identifying the vulnerable sections and sort of targeting their action towards them and thirdly the thresholds are what is given by imd and not adequately localized now these are three problems you have Uh, done well to identify so going forward what in your view would you say or say three short term or th- and three long term measures that india could possibly uh, take needs to take at multiple level state central municipal whatever to address the threats posed by hazardous heat let me start by saying these heat waves are pretty good in the fact that they identify a whole bunch of solutions right so they talk about nature based solutions and information solutions and infrastructure solutions they are actually incredibly diverse in the toolkit they give the uh, uh heat action plan implementer on the ground but the big problem is the fact that they are completely uh under institutionalized right so my three recommendations are about institutionalizing them better so that they can be implemented the first of uh, my first recommendation is that these should be financed we found that these heat action plans were completely underfinanced 
we have extensive sets of solutions that are identified but don't find any funding for them the second very important point uh, is that they need to be more consultative and more transparent uh, because we didn't find uh, evidence of adequate local consultation uh, nor did we find that they were transparent enough for us to find 37 heat action plan it took us four or five months uh, of uh, reaching out to various state disaster management authorities because they're not even publicly uh, uh, listed they're not even available online um so there has to be a process public consultation it has to be available online so all stakeholders can engage with them the third point is none of these heat action plans are uh, based on uh, an existing act so they don't have uh, legal foundations now in a bureaucracy that is understaffed and underfinanced which is you know any local government anywhere in the world but especially in india you have a capacity issue um uh, something like a heat action plan that does not carry the weight of law is quite likely not to be uh, implemented so we've suggested if you can't um, enshrine the entire heat action plan in a law at least have major parts of it enshrined within the existing environmental uh, legal framework so you could imagine parts of it uh, being uh, housed under the disaster management act parts of it under the water act parts of it under the air act in different cases at both the national state uh, and, and state levels so these are the three sort of big ones uh, financing transparency and consultation um, and uh, uh, legal legal foundations right i think uh, these three are really uh, eminently sensible uh, suggestions uh, to make uh, of course we need uh, definitely a, a properly funded uh, heat action plan and secondly i mean as we discussed we need it to be more transparent and consultative so that it is more responsive to actual needs on the ground and thirdly as you said it needs legal teeth for it to be enforceable you know otherwise uh, we will have it it might look it might even be the best plan but unless there is some kind of pressure for implementation it's not going to be of much help thank you so much aditya for talking to us on this uh, it was really a pleasure talking to you on this topic hopefully we'll come back for more on this subject thank you so much great thank you so much in focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by the Hindu. We'll see you soon.